We will be in Psalm 78 again, same as last week. When you uh, get there, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread and provide meat for His people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for He gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. and They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. 
He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the word of the Lord. God. Well, hopefully uh, you are not too worn down after the long reading of Psalm 78 for two weeks in a row. And uh, I just want to acknowledge on the front end that uh, we were here last week. We had about eight minutes of reading at that time. Uh, we're here again this week, uh, another long reading of the text. And so before we get into the text, I figured it's, uh, it's at least a little bit worth it to describe or justify why it's worthwhile to read God's word at length, particularly in the public worship gathering at church. As Christians, we are required by God to know his word well so that we can obey his word. One of the great blessings that we have in our day is that we all have access to God's word by means of it brought into our own language. I doubt that any of you have a translation other than an English translation in front of you. And whether you realize that or not, that's a great blessing from God's providence uh, 
to his people, that we can have access to his word. And one of the ways that we can best honor the providence of God in giving us access to his word is simply by trying to understand it as best as we are able. And to understand requires us to read. Even long, lengthy, 72 verse long sections of scripture, which seem to repeat the same point over and over again. One of the disciplines that that puts within us is it allows us to see God's word beyond the two or three or four verse sound bites that we are typically trained to uh, hear it in. Uh, if you grew up in church, particularly in the early 2000s, uh, one, of the, one of the great movements of that era was the movement to read the Bible devotionally so that you have a personal contact touch point with God where you can hear his voice speak to you in the mornings and you can walk away for the day encouraged or strengthened or in some way the better for having studied God's word. And that was a great movement, but it stood on the shoulders of a generation prior to that that knew God's word essentially inside and out from their own training in Sunday school and preaching and, and all the rest. Uh, our generation does not quite stand on the same shoulders of robust knowledge and access to scripture in that way. And so our tendency, especially young Christians' tendency, is to, well, dive specifically into one verse or a couple of verses and hear them devoid of the context in which they're actually located in. Uh, for instance, uh, we might uh, just, for example, take to verse 32, uh, and we might read that in spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they still did not believe. And so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. And we might uh, read that in the morning in our devotional time, and uh, you wouldn't really know what to do with that if that was your verse for the morning. <laughs> There's no real way to derive encouragement from that. Maybe it causes you to reflect on your own sin, but it doesn't quite get you to the point of Psalm 78, because the point of Psalm 78 is not that Israel sinned. The point of Psalm 78 is that God was faithful to Israel even though they sinned. But you don't get that in just a couple of verses. So in reading the psalm at length, both last week and this week, we're establishing for you a way to read scripture, which is to read scripture on its own terms, to read scripture as it itself is presenting it to you, which is to read essentially Psalm 78 as an entire unit of thought and not to stop too far at any one particular point. Now, that might feel like it's coming out of left field, that explanation, but uh, I say all that to say, if you were paying attention last week, uh, you realize we didn't get all the way through the Psalm and you might have left last week with the conclusion that I understand how the Psalm is about God and his people, God and his fickle people, but I'm not quite sure that that has yet gotten me to the conclusion that the psalm is about Christ and his fickle bride, which is what I said to you last week. I said, this psalm is about Christ and his fickle bride. And you might say, well, I don't see Jesus mentioned any here, anywhere here in Psalm 78. Uh, in fact, the bride of Christ isn't mentioned anywhere here in Psalm 78. Uh, so where am I going to get that conclusion? Am I guilty of what I just told you not to do, which is to read into the text things that aren't really there? So I'm throwing that out on the front end to tell you that this week, uh, we're going to build on the foundation we had last week and actually conclude the point that this psalm is about Christ and his fickle bride. So uh, with that, we need to do a brief recap of what the psalm has said so far so that we can hear what it's saying to us in its concluding verses. So if you'll uh, just look with me in broad brushstrokes at the opening uh, verses of the psalm, verses 1 through 8, uh, we commented last week that these verses are about the 
the driving point of the psalm. They are telling us what the psalm is about, what its purpose is, and how we are to hear it. So Asaph, the writer, uh, writes in verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So he's saying, listen to me, this psalm is not a praise psalm necessarily. This psalm is not uh, a psalm of repentance or lament. This psalm is a psalm of instruction. It's a way to teach God's people uh, through words, through poetry. And so he's going to teach us, and what he's going to teach us, he tells us. He says in verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. The lesson you are to learn is that you would set your hope in God and not forget the works of God, but rather keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So he tells us on the front end he's going to teach us through the psalm, and then he tells us what he's going to teach us, and then uh, he leaves the rest of the psalm to establish and ground that lesson. And then he goes on in the next uh, several verses, verses 9 through 16, he tells us about God's faithfulness to Israel in the Exodus narrative, both in Egypt and as they depart from Egypt, how God moved of his own will to redeem them, how he did so with great powers and wonders and signs that were undeniable to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's magicians. And what does Israel do in response to all of God's wonders? As soon as, they, as, soon as the wonder is out of their visual field and one day has fallen on their wonder, they conclude things like, uh, can he really feed us? Can he really give us water? Can he really take care of us in the wilderness? And keep in mind, these are the same eyes and same people who saw the wonders that he did in Egypt. And so verse 17 tells us particularly about their wilderness wanderings after the Exodus. Uh, From verse 17 all the way through to verse 31 really details that whole account. And it focuses in on the one story that typifies Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. The fact that they were getting manna from God and if you remember the story, they, they walk away saying something like, I wish that we had something other than manna to eat. And you remember the first time they ate manna in the wilderness, Israel was saying things like, this is the bread of angels, it tastes sweet as honey, it's flaky, it's delicious, it's exactly what we wanted. And it's, it's not even a couple of chapters later that you find Israel saying things like, we are so sick of this manna. And so what God does is he says, all right, you don't want manna, you want meat. I'll give you all the meat you can eat and then some and more than you can eat to the point where it makes you sick and actually causes you to die. And this is God essentially giving them what they've asked for, giving them their own craving, their own lust, and Israel realizing that God was actually providing for them what they needed the whole time. He's not actually short in saving them. And that leads us to verse 32 through verse uh, 42 of the psalm, where we see that Israel... uh, recognizes that God is being faithful to them and wants to get out from under the punishment that they're receiving. So they recognize that they're sinning. They recognize that God's being faithful and disciplining them while they sin. And so they, they falsely repent before God because, well, they don't like how sinning, the discipline of sin that it brings. They don't like how that feels. They don't like getting caught in their sin or punished for their sin. So they flatter God. They go to him and they say, Lord, we're sorry. We, we are asking for forgiveness. We won't go back to our old sin. We will, we will throw away our idols. We, we won't go worship the calf that we made. Uh, would you just take this plague away from us? And as the rest of the wilderness wanderings tell us, this is a cycle that Israel repeats several times. They go to God and ask for forgiveness. God removes the plague or the dis, uh, discipline that he has put in their midst. 
uh, only for them, as soon as the discipline is gone, for them to return once again to the same sin that they had been doing right before God removed the discipline from them. And so what God says in, uh, through the writer Asaph here in verse 36, that all they're doing in this process is they're flattering God. They're just saying the things they think God wants to hear, lying to him with their tongues, but they're not actually being steadfast towards him. And then that is then, uh, and then we're reminded in verse 43 through verse 51, or sorry, verse 43 through verse 53, that this is the same generation that saw what God did to Egypt in the wilderness uh, and in the Exodus account. And so their, their sinning is magnified by the fact that they know the kind of God who they serve. They know that God is merciful towards them. He wants to save them from their destruction. He, he rescues them from their slavery. He gives them chance and chance to repent of their sin. And so their sinning is magnified by the mercy of God to suffer with them in their sin. So that after the false repentance, Asaph switches and he tells us all about the wonderful signs that God did in Egypt, which doesn't seem like it has much to do with God's mercy, except that it highlights Israel's hard-heartedness. It highlights their stubbornness. And it highlights how patient God is actually being with Israel. And you remember last week, the, the big takeaway, a big chunk of what we're to learn from the psalm is that this God is not what the Western 21st century world would have you believe he is. Uh, the Old Testament God is not a wrathful, vindictive, upset man who wants to just punish people for his own pleasure. That could not be further from the truth if you read Psalm 78. The God of Psalm 78 is patient, kind, long-suffering, and mighty to save his people. So what Psalm 78 is establishing for us is God's consistency and Israel's inconsistency. And that's been kind of established in these, in these uh, sections we've already looked at. Now that is all what we covered last week. And so then this week we turn to how Israel behaves once they're in the promised land that God puts them in. So I mentioned to you last week that Psalm 78 covers at least a third of your Old Testament. So far, if you're going chronologically through your Old Testament, uh, you've made it through the Torah, uh, and now we're about to enter into the historical book. So you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. These are all about to be covered in the next verses. So verse 54 says, And he brought them into his holy land, to the mountain which his right had won. This is God bringing Israel into the promised land. And remember, this is God bringing them into the promised land in spite of all the wilderness nonsense in spite of all their rebellion and hard-heartedness and wickedness in the wilderness and in the Exodus. So you see God's mercy persisting towards Israel. And he brought them into his holy land to the mountain which his right-handed one, and he drove out the nations before them, and he apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. So God goes into the promised land before Israel. This is all, all recorded for us in the book of Joshua and essentially clears a path for Israel to go, where his, the fear of the Lord goes before the nation of Israel, such that when they're in the city of Jericho, and their spies are in Jericho and trying to figure out who are these people, uh, the people of Jericho are scared of Israel's God because of what he's done to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. 
So God's, God's going before Israel to establish them in the land. He drives out the other nations before them. And, and God is faithful to those promises. Joshua 21 tells us that there is not a single promise of the Lord that was not fulfilled to that generation. He apportioned for them a possession, and he settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Then verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the most high God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. These uh, Israelites are the second generation from the Israelites that have gone through the Exodus and through the wilderness wanderings. And so the Psalm rightly says in verse 57 that these are the Israelites who did not learn from the mistakes of their fathers, rather they're copying and pasting the mistakes of their fathers. So Joshua's generation goes, the Lord is faithful to Joshua, faithful to the people to establish them in the land, and as the book of Judges tells us, but then another generation came up that did not know the Lord or fear him. And so they tested and rebelled against God. They did not keep his testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places, and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. Uh, the high places, uh, this is the, the way that the Canaanite peoples, the, the many different peoples that are in the land, the uh, Amorites and the Hivites and the, the Hittites and the Philistines, this is how they worship their idols. They would set up high places, which is places of reserved worship, and they would go there and they would maybe sacrifice, maybe they would burn offerings before their gods, uh, maybe they would, uh, in some instances, have sexual relations with their cult prostitutes as a, as a sign of fertility. Uh, this is what the Canaanites of the land would do, and the most wicked of the sins of the peoples in the land is that they kill their infants so that the gods of the land would be appeased and so they could have a fruitful harvest. This is one of the most wicked sins that those people did. And so what does Israel do when they're in the land? They turn from God, and not only do they turn from God, they turn towards the sins of these Canaanite peoples, and they provoked him to anger with their own high places. So now it's not the Canaanites who have high places that the Israelites are driving out. Now it's the Israelites who are establishing high places. And so what's God to do with his own people who are now sinning in the same way that the people of the land were sinning before he drove those people out? And they moved him to jealousy with their idols. Israel builds Baals. They build Asherah. They build all kinds of false gods so that they can say, well, you, maybe I, I serve Yahweh, but I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to diversify my portfolio. I'm going to invest also in some Baal worship, some Asherah worship, maybe with Chemosh a little bit on the side, just so I have all my bases covered, all my harvests covered, all my people groups covered, so that there's no God out there that's mad at me. This is what Israel's doing. They're turning away from God. And in doing so, God heard. He is full of wrath. In verse 59, he utterly rejected Israel. Now, this utter rejection that God does towards Israel is to be heard in the context of the previous 57 verses, which has established God's long-suffering patience towards Israel. At this point, uh, you and I should not be surprised that this is the response that God gives to Israel, because it's the response that Israel has been begging for by their behavior the entire time the psalm has been going on. From verse 9 through to the present verse, since the historical recountings towards Israel have been going on, uh, Israel has been pushing this point, 
trying to say we want nothing to do with this God. And God has been rescuing them, disciplining them, walking with his people. And in verse 59, he utterly rejects Israel. But the question that we have to ask is, what does that rejection look like? What does that rejection accomplish? Verse 60 60 tells us that he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, and he vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young woman had no marriage song. The priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. So the rejection of Israel by Yahweh is taking place through a military defeat that Israel is suffering. He forsakes his dwelling at Shiloh. He forsakes the tent where he dwelt among them, that tabernacle that they carried with them through the wilderness. He delivers his power into captivity. Uh, His power is the Ark of the Covenant, which he has uh, as a sign of his power for his people. He delivers it to captivity. He gives his glory into the hand of the foe. In this case, the foe is the Philistines. And if you uh, want to see historically where this all takes place, uh, we'll just briefly look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, just to get the context for where we're at. So 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, is the culmination of what Israel has been pushing for for the entire book of Judges, uh, and now it kind of is all coming to a head. I'll read beginning in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 4. So the people, they sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. With the Ark of the Covenant of God. So Israel is about to go to war against the Philistines. They don't like that the Philistines are close to their land. And so they're going to say, you know, we've been wicked. We don't really want much to do with God in our daily devotion and life and worship. But we could really use Yahweh right now because he's proven himself faithful in battle. So they're going to grab the ark and they're going to say, here, Yahweh, we're bringing the ark forward. Uh, Now he's definitely going to have to win the battle. We've we've strong armed God into doing our will. Verse five, you can hear the anticipation. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, why? What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Who are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness? And then their response, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines are scared. Israel thinks they're going to win. Battle ensues. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You're hearing the language of Psalm 78 there. God deserts his dwelling in Shiloh. He gives his own power into captivity. He gives his glory into the hands of the enemy. He allows 
himself to be disgraced so that Israel might wake up and learn a lesson. But that's not the end of 1 Samuel 4. And I'll have us read it not in 1 Samuel, but rather back in Psalm 78. You see, what God does is without any kind of precedent, without any kind of expectation for him to do. He decides that he's done with Israel. He's cut them off. They have forsaken him for the last time, the priests, all the, all the people. And verse 65 of Psalm 78 says it. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to root. He put them to everlasting shame. You see, what God does to the Philistine camp is not through Israel and not through any other vehicle, but rather through his own power and mighty works, he rescues himself from the Philistine camp. He rescues his own ark from the camp. He first sends a plague into the Philistines to where they eventually think, well, we need to get rid of this ark. And during that time, he's busy taking their Baal statue and causing it to fall flat on its face over and over again to break it. And, that's, and that's, Israel's not getting any glory from that. Right? Israel has lost the battle. They have been shamed. And so God is going to do it of his own power. And ultimately, what the Philistines do is they say, well, we don't want to carry the ark. We certainly don't want to carry it back to the Israelites. We're going to tie two cows to the ark, and we're going to send it off and let them walk wherever they walk. And they go straight back to Israel. So God, uh, without any human vehicle, saves himself by his own strength. As verse 65 says, he put his ad- er, the Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. He put his adversaries to root, and he put them to everlasting shame. Uh, this is God as, as though from slumber and drunkenness, waking up to once again proclaim his glory. It, it's, it's putting an image in our mind about how we're to understand the crazy turn of events that this is, that God is still going to persist with Israel. He's still going to try to save them. He's still going to go back to his people, even though, as the, the previous verses have said, uh, he rejects Israel. So how does God go back to his people? Well, in this case, he doesn't go back as he has done in previous times. But this time he goes back to make a lasting change for his people. Verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. That's uh, the tribe Ephraim. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And there he built his sanctuary like the high heavens like the earth which he had founded forever. He chose David as his servant. And he took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And with an upright heart, he, that is David, shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So here you have the picture that God is going to save Israel even when he says he rejects Israel. He's still going to move to save them. And he does so this time by establishing a king. He does so this time by establishing a different tribe, not the biggest and grandest tribe in Israel, Ephraim, but rather a king from Judah, from this really uh, unassuming, not really significant tribe. He chooses from them one man, David, who will be the one who he says, this is my king. He will rule as my ambassador to the people. And it is through David's kingship 
that the glory and golden age of Israel is brought in. So when Israel is established initially in the promised land and Joshua passes away, the book of Judges is, is constantly repeating this refrain. Uh, this, is, this is happening, Israel's sinning, whatever. They return back to their sin. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the book of Judges is saying, there's no king, here's the problem. And God, at the end of, uh, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, sets in motion the establishment of the king. And in 2 Samuel, the king is reigning. And God makes a covenant with David and says, my glory will not depart from you. You will have one who sits on your throne as an everlasting king who will be the one who establishes peace for Israel. Now, as history tells us, Israel has a golden age, but after Solomon and Solomon's poor decision-making and returning back to sin, the glory once again departs from Israel. And after Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne, Israel is wrenched in two, and then it's on a downhill spiral from that point forward for God to eventually destroy his people by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and bring them into captivity. So we might conclude that what God did here was a good measure, a long-lasting measure, but not a permanent measure to save his people by the institution of a king. And we would be right to conclude that unless, unless we had those other books on the front end of our Bible that tell us all about how Jesus is of the line of David, he's of the lineage of that ancestry, and he's going to be the one who establishes the kingdom forever through his reign. So Psalm 78 leaves us with this half-finished story about God's unfaithful people and how God is persistently faithful to them, even giving them a king, which they don't deserve. And then the New Testament comes in and says, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. He's the one who is the prince of peace, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Isaiah 9. Now, where is Jesus in Psalm 78? Well, in the early verses of Psalm 78, Asaph says, verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things which have not yet heard and known that our fathers have told to us. And then Asaph launches from that point into an explanation about how God has been faithful to Israel in spite of all their sinning, and Israel's supposed to learn the lesson from history. Well, that verse, that quotation, is quoted in Matthew 13, verse 35, to describe the ministry of Jesus speaking in parables, and ultimately, in, in Matthew's whole thrust, to establish how Jesus is the Messiah to sit on the throne of David. That's the whole point of Matthew's gospel. That here is one who is coming to be the answer that we need. And as it, as it applies to Jesus' teaching ministry, he hearkens back to this psalm, this, we would say, half-finished psalm. And he brings it to a conclusion in Matthew's gospel to say, he's the one who dies on the cross to make a way for his people and who ascends to the throne to rule over his people as a good, permanent king who will abide with them forever. So that Psalm 78 is not a psalm that just tells Israel about its own history. It's a psalm that very much has to do with Christians because it tells us about our Messiah as the answer to Israel's rather shaky history. It tells us about how Jesus is the one who 
in every way, shape, and form, deals with the wrongs that Israel has done in its own uh, journey with God. The way Derek Kidner says it is like this. If Psalm 78 is Israel's record of her shame, it is God's persistent goodness that will ultimately emerge as her hope. Israel's record and all of the shame associated with it is laced throughout these verses. And so the psalm drives us to conclude, as the early verses tell us, so that we would set our hope in God. For it is God's faithfulness which emerges out of Psalm 78 as the hope for Israel and all who follow the God of Israel. Which is exactly how Jesus comes to plug in the hole and void filmed, filled by the exile after Psalm 78 is written. It is God's persistent goodness, we might say, displayed in the character of Jesus through his life and death and ultimately his resurrection that emerges also as our hope. Because as Israel's record is their shame, so too is Peter's record his shame, so too is your record your shame, so too is the apostles' record their shame, uh, it's the early church's record, that's its shame. And among all that shameful record emerges the only hope that we all have, which is God, who is the one who is our hope. And this is the truth that Christians cling to. It's, it's the gospel message, which is that we fall short of God's glorious standards. So we set our hope in God to save us from that shortcoming, to be in relationship with us. And then, sometime later, we come to the conclusion that well, God had got us a good initial start. He got us up and running, but we've got it from here. And as Psalm 78 tells us, uh, that is to not learn the lesson from history. To, to make that conscious choice, to wake up in the morning and say, I've got it from here. God's got me off my feet, and now I'm up and running. Uh, that is not at all what the gospel is about. Uh, the gospel is not some, some loan you give to a startup businessman so that they can get, they get their business up and running and then from there on, by their own investing and good works, they could carry that business to success. Rather, Israel's record is that every business you give them, they're going to burn into the ground. And yet God is always there to rescue them, to redeem them, and to once again remind them that he's been their hope the whole time. So as Christians, when we are tempted to despair because we've fallen again, Psalm 78 reminds us that the God we serve is the kind of God who's persistently walking with his people. And it also guards us from the temptation to begin to rely on ourselves in the first place. It guards us from the temptation that we all have to think we're, we've got this religion thing pretty well down. And so now we're going to measure our success and failure by how much of the Bible we read, by how much we pray, by how many good works we do, by, by all those other metrics. Psalm 78 tells us that's a losing record. It has been since the beginning of God's covenantal relation with his people. The only winning record is hope solely and finally on God. And then that brings us to the ultimate conclusion of the psalm. Which in verse uh, 7 of Psalm 78, it's, it's in the introduction, but it's also the concluding thrust. So that you, Christian, would set your hope also in God, and not forget the works of God. And in this case, we're not just talking about his miracles to save them from Egypt, 
we're also talking about the sending of his son to save you from every principality and power that you were enslaved to before you were brought into his marvelous light. So that you would keep his commandments, which are not burdensome, and so that you would not be like your fathers, the Israelites, who failed to learn this lesson time and time again. That's what the psalm's getting at. That's what Asaph wants us to learn. And that is what this word is for us today. That we would learn from the previous generations to set our hope in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word, which is powerful. It is marvelous. And Lord, these words come to us to soothe our aching souls. We recognize that so often our eyes turn inward, our focus turns to ourselves, and we begin to execute religious activity and, and fail to acknowledge the God whom we're supposed to be worshiping the whole time. Lord, would you forgive us for falling short in such a way and cause us by your grace, by the power of your spirit, to take our eyes away from navel-gazing, away from self-exaltation, away from focusing on our sin or our success, and focusing on the God who has dealt with sin and who is ultimately successful. We pray that you would grant us this mercy, causing us to look away from ourselves and onto the beautiful face of Christ Jesus. Amen.